Hey, pull up a chair. Attacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. Hey, Murphy, how you doing, brother? I'm doing good, Axe, here with the family, taking a little summertime and crazy times, but I'm excited today not only to hear your dulcet tones coming from uh, Fort Liberal. I have with us, I want to introduce, a great honor, our friend, the legendary political analyst and um, oh, everything, everything about politics she does well. It's Amy Walter from the Cook Political Report. Hey, Amy. Hey, Mike. Hey, David. So good to see you. We got so much to talk about. We thought the Senate would be less interesting than it is than it is now. Uh, right. But I, I have to tell you guys, I was on the treadmill this morning. I was working out as I do every day because uh, to keep up with Mike Murphy and to get ready for the big Chicago marathon whenever it resumes, because he and I are going to try and break our personal records. Yep. Yep. This could be it. <laughs> as I was doing that, I saw a new Trump ad. Now, maybe I missed this. I didn't realize this ad was up, but it was on the de- defunding police. Uh, have you guys seen that ad? I have not. No. It starts off with uh, someone making a 911 call. You know, there's a rape in progress. There's a murder in progress. And it's split screen with images of people holding up signs, defund police. And, um, uh, you know, it's, a, it's like a dystopic vision. And it ends with uh, Joe Biden supporters want to defund police. You know, Joe Biden is hazardous to your safety or something like that. And it just seemed like the perfect ad after, after this weekend. I mean, we have descended into a really, really dark place. I mean, the Trump thing has gone nuts. Yeah, I think he's really pushing the red crazy button now because he knows as every poll and he can feel even Fox looks like that love affairs on the rocks uh, is bad news for him. So it's it's time to go to the absolute, you know, molten core of, of his grievance appeal. And that's what he's trying to do. But it doesn't seem to be getting much traction, which will even piss him off more. Amy, what did you make of the weekend and the, the those Fourth uh, of July orations of of the president. Yeah, I mean, this isn't all that surprising. Remember, at the end of 2018, he went full on to the caravan and MS-13 and sanctuary cities, even as Republicans in swing districts were pleading with him to push economy, right? Let's talk about how great things are and push all of, of the good news about the economy. The president is and will always be much more interested in playing the grievance strategy, as Mike pointed out. And so, you know, I think this is kind of where he's wanted the race to be, honestly, um, is this culture fight. The problem for him is he is seen as totally um, unbelievable as a messenger. And even by some Republicans, I mean, when you look at, you guys better than anybody understand how to look at a poll and what to do as a candidate, you're going to want to lean into the things that people think that you're doing well on and stay away from the things where people think you're weak. And his weakest showing is on the issue of empathy and racial relations. And so what is he doing? He's leaning into both of those things. Um, which is the exact opposite yeah. of what anybody would tell him to do. 
The one thing he still has some credibility, not as much as he used to, but he still has some credibility on the economy. He's not interested in having that fight. He's really not. And he really does believe that at the end of the day, the silent majority is sitting there in suburban America, terrified that um, Joe Biden is going to come for their guns and their police. Uh, Again, I think he is the worst messenger for this. At the same time, I was just, I'm going to write about it this week, but in talking to some Republicans who are in the field with Republicans and suburban voters, there is concern about the so-called cancel culture and the kind of liberals pushing it too far, whether it's on defunding the police or whether it's the sense that, you know, we can't say anything or do anything or post anything, we're going to get called out. Um, So I think there is an argument to be made there. It's just that Donald Trump is not the messenger to make it. I think this will be an important argument, maybe down ballot, but even then I think Trump, um, he pollutes it. So it's not a clean argument. But I do think this is the kind of thing where in 2022, Democrats could be on the defensive here. It's just that it's 2020 and Trump is just way too toxic. And we're in the and and we're in the middle of a pandemic. Correct. Correct. I mean, the thing that makes it most striking, I mean, his speech over the weekend, the only real reference to uh, the the pandemic, which has now reared its ugly head in a vicious way and in states that are close to him and have followed his direction. Uh, you know, he and he said that it was 99 percent harmless as the emergency rooms are overflowing. Uh, you know, that sort of tone deafness, not only is he pouring kerosene on one fire, but he's ignoring another. And uh, I think that the two are a caustic mix for him. I agree with you, Amy. This thing could there could be a backlash to some of this but he's not in any position to harness it right now. Well, he just doesn't have the tools of finesse. I mean, the Dems are often prone to stumble into culture war traps sent by the Republicans. And look, if you're out knocking down statues of Christopher Columbus and Frederick Douglass, there is an opportunity to to kind of work that politically. But Trump doesn't have the subtlety to do it because it calls for a moderate tone against their extremism. And instead, he, no pun intended, trumps the extremism with extremism of his own. They're, by defining himself as part of the problem, you know, he, he can only speak in terms of grievance and revenge. And then, as you say, meanwhile, the pandemic cannot be spun. You know, bi- biology is, is science and math. And He's made it a cultural thing to not wear a mask and, you know, go lick doorknobs and say that germs are invisible <laughs> and they can't hurt me. Well, here we are in red states now feeling the pain, as we talked about and predicted uh, months ago on this podcast. So, he, you know, a normal president has the tools to at least give a fight to get out of trouble. But because Trump is instinct, not strategy, he doesn't really have the tools. He just doubles down. And so it's like watching a guy in quicksand flail around as his head sinks lower and lower. It's, it's, it's just a, a train wreck. And the fact that his consultant types are out on background saying, you know, if you'd only listen to me, that's the rats gnawing on the side of the ship to jump off <laughs> and right. cover their own asses, which is why they're there in the beginning. Amy, uh, isn't, um, it, I, I, I've written about this and we've all, I think, talked about it, but I mean, one of his frustrations and problems here is that Biden is such an uh, such a bad target for right. culture wars? That's right. He 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 he's an old white Irish Catholic guy, 
uh, from a working class background. He was very smart, I thought, to jump on the defund police thing quickly, jumped on the statue thing quickly. So Trump yep. is going for a bank shot here, trying to associate yep. him with others. But people don't, you know, the, the voters that Trump wants to scare, they feel comfortable with Biden. And it's going to be hard to knock them off of that, particularly when Trump is misbehaving as he is. That's right. And it's even, I think bank shot is a great word for it because even Trump, when he talks about Biden, he admits he's no left wing crazy, right? And he'll say that, like he's not a left wing war, but he is going to be manipulated by the left wing crazies, right? So then it's, I know, I know, I know, you can't believe this guy's Bernie Sanders, but Bernie and AOC and Pelosi are all going to be behind the the scenes pushing his buttons. That's even a, a bridge too far. And and to the final point, I mean, you guys, again, you know this, but this crisis actually for another president would have been a tremendous opportunity to yes. show the American public, right? Here's a crisis and I'm going to resp- I'm going to meet that moment. So any other president who was sitting at poll numbers like Trump was before the pandemic, somewhere in the mid 40s could say you know what, here is an opportunity for me to show the public that, yes, indeed, I can do this job. Here's a crisis nobody, that nobody wants to have to deal with, but I took this job and I'm going to deal with it. And there was a moment, like a week, when it looked like he might be able to do that. And then, <laughs> yeah. yeah, then he became Trump and it's about pine saw and swallowing <laughs> right. fish tank lights, you know, on the carom shot. I, I totally agree. <laughs> but if I were the Biden people again, and I, I pounded this, I'm going to do it one more time. Occasionally it generates angry viewer mail, but don't leave the screen door behind the house unlocked with the VP pick. Because Biden handled the defund cop things quickly and right, as David said. You know, he culturally doesn't fit the wild-eyed liberal. So careful about VP. Don't give Trump something to work with. You know, I I just can't let the moment pass uh, without uh, us listening to just a little snippet of one of his weekend uh, speeches. And then the White House uh, interpretation of the speech, because the whole thing was so absurd. Let's. Jeff, can we tee that up? We will never allow an angry mob to tear down our statues, erase our history, indoctrinate our children, or trample on our freedoms. We will safeguard our values, traditions, customs, and beliefs. We will teach our children to cherish and adore their country so that they can build its future. Over the holiday weekend, President Trump delivered two defining, unifying, and patriotic speeches which drew widespread praise by those who cherish our values, honor our history, and seek to advance policies that lift up all Americans. I feel lifted. (laughs) I'm very lifted. It's very unifying. That was his version of a unifying speech, apparently. Lifting up all people. Unifying is really the word. It, it's become self-parody. That's where we are. And I, and I do. I, I agree, Mike. And I think that voters are really kind of tuning, tuning that piece out. It is a president who wants to replay the 2016 campaign. He doesn't have the right foe, as we pointed out. Joe Biden is not Hillary Clinton. Joe Biden is not Bernie Sanders. He doesn't. He's in the middle of a pandemic instead of a an era when he was running in 2016 where things were pretty stable. 
And so um, while I think, yes, there are concerns among many of those suburban voters who are turned off by Trump that Democrats could get in there and kind of push the needle too far on some of this stuff, whether it's, you know, as I said, it's not just pulling down statues of Christopher Columbus and throwing them in the lake, but, um, you know, getting on to uh, who's okay and who's not okay to uh, be uh, on the, you know, in certain jobs or what you're allowed, what books you're allowed to use in schools. There, I think you will see sort of a, a rallying around by conservatives. It's just once again, it's a it's a messenger who is trapped yeah. in the wrong time. No light touch at all. Um, well, no. David, anything to add? And then we can be off to a delicious menu of the Senate races. Indeed. Well, the Senate races are being spiced, <laughs> just to pick up on your- Tortured metaphor. <laughs> your thing there. To, is it be, being spiced by all of this. And, you know, Amy, you said this, he, the Trump thinks it's 2016. It is feeling- more and more like 2018 when, you know, those suburban areas just ran away from Trump. Uh, and if I were a Republican right now, I would be very, very uneasy about where this is going because you can't run away from him. It's too late to run away from him. And it looks like he could take a whole bunch of people over the side. You know, if you try running away now, the problem is it looks so political. I mean, a Cory Gardner could have tried distance 18 months ago and built a little fort, which is what he should have done. But now he just looks like a gutless weasel at the last minute. You know, I'm not sucking up to Trump anymore. Yes, a, a Gardner snake. snake <laughs> um, oh, man. Okay. On that, um, let's do the recap. Amy, correct me when I get something wrong here. But right now we're looking at 5347 of which two of the 47 Democrats are independents, Bernie and uh, Brother Angus King from Maine. So three is the magic number to get to a tie, and then the vice president would be in charge. Let's go through the most vulnerable, uh, uh, starting with uh, Colorado. Uh, Cory Gardner, a droid candidate, but uh, a yeah. rough place. It's a rough place. When you see that President Trump is somewhere in the 30s in Colorado, um, this is just one of those places that has so slipped away from the Republican Party in the era of Trump that Cory Gardner is going to have to outperform him by a considerable margin. And your point, Mike, is a good one, which was, you know, I think last year he had a choice, which is kind of stick with Trump and the base. And he showed up at Trump rallies in Colorado. He was not trying to be a Susan Collins. And with the hope that, you know, Trump stays in the 45, 46, 48 percent range and he can squeak by uh, in a close race in that state. But when Trump's down in the 30s, you're going to have to outperform him by 10 or 12 points. That's just that's just not going to happen. There are other the other hope from from Republicans is that John Hickenlooper, now the the official nominee, former governor, you know, who's prone to slip ups and has, uh, you know, long track record in Colorado. He has his gubernatorial record. He has his record of running for president. You know, those, those slip ups and goof ups, uh, again, in a normal environment, I think could be problematic, but this is not a normal environment. And Denver itself and the Denver suburbs, especially the Denver suburbs, have just moved so anti-Trump 
that to win, Gardner is going to need to make up in the suburbs what I, I just don't know how he does that. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a, you know, a couple of weeks of interest there uh, in the primary, in the Democratic primary, because Hickenlooper had a few uh, missteps and uh, he was being challenged uh, by a flawed candidate, but from the left. Uh, he ended up winning that by 20 points. And he really is built for the general election. He is a he's a moderate Democrat. Uh, he fits the state. Uh, and uh, I got to I got to say, I would be shocked if this weren't yeah. in the D column come November. Yeah. He's doing what all the bad Republican consultants are telling people, which is, look, if you lose your Trump voters in the rural area, you're dead. Well, you're dead with them. You know, make them run on the suburbs. <clears throat> but again, as you all say, there's no time. Well, what about here's one I'm interested in. Susan Collins in Maine. You know, she is uh -huh. a good pothole politician and she has kept herself in the race despite Maine being underwater increasingly uh, and a pretty attractive yeah. uh, candidate, yeah. uh, Sarah Gideon, who uh, uh, I think is there. They haven't locked up that primary yet. Right. Isn't it in a little later? But that's right. She's one poll has her down yeah. four, kind of a Democrat leaning poll, a Republican leading private poll has her up eight. I think it's a coin toss, which in itself is remarkable. Uh, and I guess she'll probably lose because it's the 10 point, you know, you can build a five foot breakwater, but a 15 foot wave of water is hard to stop, yeah. but she's fighting. Let me say there is no one better to talk about this race than an alum <laughs> of Colby College <laughs> in Maine, a distinguished alum, a board member up there, Amy Walter. Uh, thank you for that. I would <laughs> like to be in the lovely state of Maine right now instead of in my house where it's 93 degrees and our air conditioning is broken. So, yeah, we're getting that fixed at this moment. So I'm sorry if there's any dog barking or banging. Um, All in the part of the podcast gestalt. Isn't it? Yeah. It is. So um, I love this race too. And I do love Maine because it is, there is such a distinction between sort of coastal southern Maine and the rest of Maine, All right, Trump did very well in that second district, which is western and northern Maine. And, and obviously Hillary Clinton won the first district and, the, and narrowly carried the state. But where Collins has been successful is in winning over a good portion of those first district southern Maine Democrats, crushing among independents, um, and she's never been primaried either, which is quite remarkable. I mean, when you think about um, the ways in which she has gone against Trumpian orthodoxy, you would have thought that maybe she would have been primaried by the right. This year, she was not. So I think that's an, inc an incredible testament to her political skill. And what you're also hearing from both Democrats and Republicans is, you know, she's it's harder to attach her directly to Trump than it is, say, a Cory Gardner or a Martha McSally or some of these or Tom Tillis in North Carolina who just don't really have an identity. People aren't going to buy that Susan Collins is Donald Trump. But what they do buy is that she is not the Susan Collins she was and that she's been in Washington too long. She's kind of gotten sucked up into wanting to have the the sort of power and influence in a in a Trump world, in a Washington world. And she's kind of sold out Maine and um, 
and our main values. And what's even more remarkable, and we're going to talk about this a lot as we go through these races, is the amount of money that Democratic candidates are raising. You said it's like 2018 on uh, on steroids, David. Um, reminds you of 2018 when we yeah. had those House candidates who were raising millions and millions of dollars. Sarah Gideon raised $9 million. You can't spend $9 million in Maine. You know, you'd have to buy like the radio and TV stations in Maine. It's Portland and Bangor. You're not helping her fundraising here. <laughs> I know. But but that's just yeah. an unbelievable amount of money that she's able, uh, that Sarah Gideon, the Democrat, is, is able to put into this thing. So, look, I think for Collins, the one bit of good news could be that we get to the fall, there's another round of CARES funding, um, stimulus package. She spends the fall talking about all the money going to all the people and businesses in Maine and, and hopes to localize it as much as possible. But man, talk about just swimming against just a vicious tide. And I, and I do think that between the Kavanaugh vote and impeachment, uh, voters there who had given her the benefit of the doubt before are just not willing to give it to her now. Well, it's also how she, you know, she she defended the impeachment vote by saying she thought Trump had learned his lesson and he reacted to the impeachment vote by showing immediately that he felt empowered by the thing. And, And it just made her look silly. But, you know, this is the price one has to pay. We talked about Gardner before he could have walked away. She could have walked away. One of the ways you avoid a primary from a Trumpy is to not offend Trump so deeply that he encourages one. And that is what has held many of the Republicans who are in tough races on the reservation. Trump doesn't make it easy for you. He doesn't cut you any slack. He doesn't say, well, you know, you can take a walk on this or that. Uh, that is important to me because I know it'll help you get reelected. It's only about him. And they know that. And and so they are lashed to him. And, uh, you know, Susan Collins uh, may pay the price for that. You know, it's interesting, though. I agree with that. But Gardner did not walk away at all. And now he's sitting in the smoking wreckage. She half walked away. Maybe not enough, but she's still alive. She's in a race. And so even the half walk away and her, her history has bought her at least a fighting chance there. Now, what about Arizona? Another state where, where the president's in trouble that he won last time. Very uncertain he will repeat that win. And you got a big Senate race there, with Mark Kelly. Maybe you guys know this, but when was the last time that a Senate candidate who lost one year was appointed and came back to win? Wow, I can't. Uh, or in the next year and a half. I mean, it is... I think that's part that starts starts the challenge, right? Which is, and this is where you hear Republicans grumbling, right? Which is, why on earth would you pick as your Senate, your appointed senator, someone who was actually turned away at the polls in the previous election? Right? I mean, that's not that's not ringing. Well, if you change your name to Kamala Harris and get appointed VP, we might have another case study. But you're right. You're right. It is a slow pony. <laughs> you know, so you start off, right? So she is already starting off as a weaker candidate. The 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 theory was, well, she just needs new consultants and everything will be great. I uh, I hate that trope more than 
almost anybody else, maybe you guys hate it as much as I do, this idea that, well, you know, it was the, it was the consultant's fault. We'll get new consultants. Once we get new consultants, it's going to be better. It's always the consultant's fault. So, sometimes it is the consultants. I'll just say that. But yes, it's a trope I tend to hate, particularly when I'm the consultant they want to get rid of. <laughs> so she already started off in a hole, and Democrats got like such a great candidate in Mark Kelly, who is very difficult to demonize and to turn into some, again, some wild-eyed, crazy liberal. They're trying to tie him to China and other things. But the dude is an astronaut. He's married to Gabby Giffords. He's raised about a billion dollars. Um, and Trump is not helping at all in this state. And, you know, to me, Colorado and Arizona, if there are two that you would say, they're not in the bank for Democrats, but are the most likely to be gone. Those two are are it. Well, first of all, I, I was in Arizona for three months, and I have to tell you, I, I saw Kelly ads constantly. They were really well conceived because, uh, you know, they very much stressed his independence. They didn't, by the way, talk about him as an astronaut. They talked about him as a Navy pilot. You know, he talked about uh, how when we settled down into the cockpit we didn't check each other's party registration we just want to know if we could get the job done you know just all the right kind of buttons to push in a state like that the other thing about it is you know 54 percent of that state uh is maricopa county it's like one big suburb and it's just the worst terrain for republicans right now uh and i think this extends to trump i don't you know he is in real jeopardy in that state and obviously uh, that is such McSally was ca- uh, you know counting on Trump having at least some tails there and he is going to be pulling her down it looks like yeah totally totally well look if all three of those pop then it's a tied senate with the vice president making the decision but let let's look at another race that i think is moved into the vulnerable category which i think people wouldn't have su- thought would happen a year ago which is the great state of North Carolina with Senator Tillis. Well, David knows the state quite well because in 2008, as uh, Obama narrowly carried the state, Kay Hagan came in. She had a little bit of a bigger margin, but still with a narrow win in the Senate race there. So, you know, for Democrats this year, they've got um, something else going for them, which is, uh, Roy Cooper is up, the Democratic governor, who is doing very well, both with his job approval ratings. We know that there is another uh, sort of surge in North Carolina with with COVID, but his approval ratings have stayed in the high 50s. He has a very weak opponent. So, you know, if you get your top of the ticket um, with Biden and Cooper, that's really good news if you're Cal Cunningham. And you guys also know North Carolina, it's just such a tough state. It has, it feels like 47 different media markets. There's no sort of court. It's not like Arizona where you have Phoenix and Maricopa, you have Colorado, Denver's the core, Virginia, you have, you know, the DC suburbs mm-hmm. are, the, are the core. North no, Carolina, it's you got a little, yeah. it's, it's totally balkanized. So it's a really tough place, an expensive place to raise a to run a campaign, Democrats put up in Cal Cunningham, guy who's like moderate, um, you know, there is nothing particularly remarkable about him. And in that sense, that's good in a year where I think Joe Biden is also sort of running as a candidate who is going to be an alternative, but not 
to the extreme. And uh, what we've all what we also know about North Carolina is they really have no problem ousting their incumbents. It's such a transient state. It's so hard to get known there. So this is one of those places where um, I think, you know, you could see all three races flip, you know, you, not flip, but where Democrats win the top three in that state. The other thing to note about Tillis and, and his challenge, he tried, Mike, to get out of the Trump uh, web, right? When he, and I can't remember exactly what it was that he criticized him about early on. And the backlash was swift and furious. And there are still, I don't know if you guys remember this, this was pre-pandemic, but Trump came down for a rally. Tillis went to be the warm-up act and got booed. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if what Tillis is hoping is, okay, can lose in those, the the research triangle suburbs and lose in the Charlotte suburbs, but I'm going to just like Trump roll up numbers in rural and exurban North Carolina. Well, Tough. That may not be going for you. That he, suburbs he's are probably going to yeah. underperform. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, he, Tillis is one of those who, you know, while Gardner may outperform Trump, Tillis it could underperform him. Let me ask you a question: Does the uh, do, do do the problems uh, of Senator Burr mm. migrate at all in any? Does is that he he's run into problems about investments that he made relative to COVID based on uh, after he was briefed um i don't actually know this some some senators were right. cut loose on this i don't think he has been yet i don't think he has been yet right even kelly loffler in georgia was cut loose um you know it's a really good point and cunningham like so many other democrats around the country are trying to play not specifically on the burr allegations but you know on an issue that worked really well for them in 2018 which is not taking corporate Pack money, the sort of the swampiness of Washington and um, the pay-to-play culture. It it was very effective, especially for candidates who were trying to sort of establish this. You know, I'm going to be not just a a new fresh face, but I am going to play differently than your traditional mm-hmm. politicians have. So those are the four that you generally point to that uh, that you say if the Democrats could take over the Senate, that is those are their best chances. But the field has expanded mm-hmm. uh, as Trump's chance as Trump's numbers have gone down. The field has expanded. Talk about that and these other races that you think may move into the danger column here for right. Republicans. Well, Montana, I think, has moved into the danger column. And a lot of that is not really because of Trump, but much more about recruiting. The former governor, well, current governor of Montana, uh, Steve Bullock, who had said, I'm not going to run for Senate. I'm not going to run for Senate. Just like John Hickenlooper did in Colorado. I'm running for president. No, we, we should interject. He ran for president for about 40 minutes yeah, it's, uh, it's early that. on and just it's never that. had the base to go, but was an impressive candidate on paper. There we go, on paper. And he's an impressive candidate in Montana. And, you know, being a governor at this moment in time, especially in a state where COVID is under control, yeah, right? Advantage. He's getting really high marks there. You're not having any sort of surges or spikes. You know, at one point he had like a 70% approval rating on handling the crisis. So that is not just giving him a bump in job approval, but he's obviously getting a whole lot more media attention than he would be if he were just, you know, 
governor running for Senate. He's just he's not even really campaigning. He's just Correct. doing his job and getting a Correct. ton of coverage and uh, just sort of swamping. Uh, That's right. Who senator. I don't think anybody really knows he's a much profile about. Guy. Exactly. Yeah, he's totally got the no strong image in yep. the state problem. And, and Bullock is doing what, you know, earlier we talked about Trump should do, surround himself, guys in white coats, shut up, nod a lot, be in charge, follow the script. But yep. Trump didn't. So won't it be ironic if a theoretically very near safe Republican Senate seat is lost to somebody who was much better at COVID as the executive than Trump was? It's my dark horse bet, by the way. I think the Dems are going to win Montana. And Montana has a history of Dems, too. Strange thing about Montana, though, is despite its predilection for Republican presidential candidates, it does have a history of electing Democratic senators. Uh, And uh, that it's an anomaly that, uh, you know, may be at work again here. But, yeah, I'd be deeply worried about that. Yeah, You you point out that Hickenlooper, uh, that... uh, uh, Bullock, they resisted running for the Senate, said they didn't want to run for the Senate. I think they just finally got tired of getting uh, serial phone calls from Chuck Schumer <laughs> just to get some peace and quiet. They agreed to run for the Senate. But that could pay off for that could pay off for the Democrats. Joni Ernst, our road stomping ground of Iowa. That's she right. was another one everybody thought was safe. Yeah. I I've always smelled vulnerability on her because I thought she was kind of a one trick pony with the first campaign. But uh, what's your take? What do you think? And David, you're an old Iowa hack on the Dem side. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I, you are right. If you had said earlier in the year that Iowa was going to be one of the states that Democrats could flip. That would have been, I don't know if it had been completely laughed off, but certainly not taken seriously. The Democrats have a candidate that nobody really knows particularly well, Teresa Greenfield. Um, She ran for Congress last year, didn't get through the primary because of problems with her nominating papers. But um, look, I think she has a good story to tell. She's put up some really compelling ads. You know, she was a woman who was widowed in her, I think she might've been in her twenties or early thirties with young kids. And she has a very, as I said, compelling life story to tell business person. Um, and, and look, as, as Trump struggles in Iowa, he's taking folks like Joni Ernst, um, with her. I think there was some thought that maybe Ernst had her own image and profile that could kind of Trump, Trump, um, that's not proven to be the case thus far. I think there's the connection there that people are making between these senators and the president. And um, you're right. There is some of this vulnerability in the sense that she just she's not as fleshed out a senator as, say, a Chuck Grassley or a Tom Harkin that people could say, well, I've known these guys. They've been there I get, I have a sense of that. And that's the yardstick. You know, people compare you to them and it's hard to get on Mount Rushmore that quickly. I know people in her campaign who think they're going to make it, but they're extremely concerned. I mean, nobody's asleep there. So that's going to be quite a battle. She's sitting there with uh, an approval rating in the high thirties. That's not a good place Mm -hmm. to start here. So she's got, she's got her work cut out for her. And I think a lot of it's going to depend on whether Trump resuscitates himself to the point where he, has a few margin victory uh, in Iowa. But if he's struggling in Iowa, and as we talked about earlier, Mike, in previous uh, shows here, he he's spending money in Iowa on media early, which is a really unsettling thing if you're a Republican, because that's terrain that you would think he had control of. 
and he doesn't. Yeah, you're defending Berlin at that point. Hamburg is gone, which means Florida, the Midwest, Arizona are all toast if you're fighting right. in October to hold on to Iowa. Everything's done. Although, you know, the thing is, if you if you look at Trump's numbers from 2016, take don't look at the margin, but look at the vote share. He only got 50 point something, 51 percent of the vote in Iowa. Um, yes, it's a nine part point margin because Hillary underperformed so dramatically. But if you sort of say it at his at his peak, if he can even get back to 2016 levels, he's only at 51 yeah, percent. That's true. Um, and and the gu- gubernatorial candidate in 2018, now governor Kim Reynolds, took just over 50 percent of the vote in 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 her election in 2018. So again, you know, the margin I think scares people a lot when they look at a place like Iowa or Ohio. But if you just look at the vote share, Trump, uh, Governor DeWine in Ohio, again, 51, 50 point something percent is there. Not a lot of margin for error there. There's not any margin for error there. One thing about that, Amy, is uh, these are older states. Iowa, I think, is the oldest state in the country. One of the things that has been apparent in polling in recent months is Trump is uh, not doing well among voters over 65. That was a a strong suit for him back in 2016. I think some of this has to do with COVID and his handling of COVID and his casual dismissal of it. But that's going to be a problem for him in these states that he was counting on. These stronghold states of his, or not stronghold, but these battleground states that he won, and, and states like Iowa and, and uh, Ohio, are they went to it into his column mm-hmm. in part because older voters preferred him. That is not the case anymore. Yeah, he's. It's yeah. a fascinating thing about it. Yeah. Now we're looking at him at the nadir now because you know he hasn't done his number on Biden yet. Joe hasn't been out of the bunker, but. These numbers, he's in the Star Wars trash compactor, you know, because he's underperforming the Republican number with older people and younger and young family aged and college educated younger all hate him on the other end. So he's being crushed in by both walls here. And it, it's untenable. That's why if the election held tomorrow, he'd lose. Uh, now, what about the double races in Georgia? Th- this one we're going to have to explain a little because mm. we got a two for one sale going on with with two Senate ra- a special. <laughs> and I want you walk us through all the players and tell us what you think. You're right. So you have a, a regular election up. David Perdue, the sitting senator now, is up for re-election. He's going to face off against John Ossoff. Many of your listeners may remember him as the candidate of twenty, the the, the boy wonder of 2017, or maybe the canary in the coal mine of 2017, came very close to winning a suburban Karen Georgia Handel, district right, right. Uh, in the House in a special election. Yeah, that Karen Handel won, and then Karen Handel lost, lost in the general election. Um, I hope she uh, rented her, her apartment and didn't buy, because that was one of the shorter congressional terms. That was. And as we know, we're, we've been talking a lot about the suburbs. That district, as well, there's another open seat uh, in Gwinnett. Those are districts that have just the speed at which they have moved from being Republican strongholds to to Democratic areas is is pretty breathtaking. So that's a regular election. And then what we have uh, on the other side is a special election where all candidates, this is to replace Senator Johnny Isaacson, all the candidates run on the same ballot. um, And if no one gets over 50%, then there's a runoff in January. Now, 
the question there, you all, is would you rather be a Democrat up and running in November uh, or a Democrat running in January when the Senate has potentially flipped already and Biden is the president? I think that's that's a that's like a almost a rhetorical question, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I would much rather be the Democrat in November. I actually think if the special were a year later and you could ride some anti-Biden, it would be good. But right afterward, I think there would be plenty of energy in Biden. I've worked Georgia a couple of times, and it is another state like North Carolina that is rapidly changing. And, you know, the old Atlanta suburbs, Gwinnett, ain't what they used to be. It's not like Orange County out in California that's flipped from, you know, uh, 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 Hillary carried it. So I don't know how to handicap this. It strikes me as a battle of weak candidates. Purdue is a famous jerk, but he's an incumbent and a conservative and whatever. Kelly Loeffler looks like she showed up for an audition of Real Housewives and went in the wrong door and wound up in McConnell's office and got beamed up to the Senate, and she stumbled on the tax thing. But the Democrats, Ossoff, there are plenty of people who think that he should have won that special. He was an inept candidate. He's never really done politics before. So I'm not sure he's Superman as far as a candidate. And then the other Democratic candidate's a well-respected young uh, minister, I believe. But again, somebody without real political experience. So, you know, I, I don't think there's a total A-list operator in any of them. And it could come down to generic, which, you know, might still lean our little, though it's sure disintegrating quick. Isn't the, aren't the odds that Leffler won't be in yes. that runoff isn't I isn't the that's right that that's more likely it's doug collins republican congressman who everybody remembers from the impeachment hearing. that's right and part of the reason that mcconnell at all wanted somebody like kelly leffler in there was that she was going to appeal to those changing suburbs mike but instead she turned out to do two things one to be just as tied to trump and trumpism and the whole agenda as a Doug Collins, right? She was worried about being primary uh, seen yeah. as being, yep, and not sufficiently Trump positive. And then she had this stock ordeal. And so this idea that she has some sort of secret sauce appeal to suburban women is is gone. So Doug Collins becomes, you know, your sort of traditional, uh, I don't know, he's not much different than so many of the other Trump Trumpian candidates. Um, but I don't know that he'd do any worse than Kelly Loeffler among those same suburban voters. Yeah. Not Kelly 2.0. You know, you always have the two-point plan. Well, Mitch, we got to win the suburbs. Nobody ever does the second part, which we got to run a candidate who's good, who can actually live to do that, because you have to be very wily. And she was not. <laughs> right. Though the polling doesn't show. She, have, she, she did have one asset which was assets. Um, assets. It's yeah. pun yes. night here with, with David Axelrod yeah. all week. Yes, sir. Where's the rim shot? Um, hey, I just want to make a point that I agree Collins will probably win, but he hasn't locked it up. You know, she's been hanging in the polling. She's a big checkbook, more television. Most of the polling is a couple point lead for him mm -hmm. in, you know, That's the true. big everybody on one ballot. If Biden's coming in, some R's may think strategically and think he's dead in the general. So I, I think it counts as a favorite, but I don't, I don't think he's totally got a lock on, on beating her yet. Let me ask two questions about this. One is, what is the role of people's attitudes toward the governor in this race? Because Kemp has been under siege. Hmm. Uh, for his handling of COVID. Mm -hmm. Second, 
What about voting there, which has been an ongoing saga and, you know, uh, in terms of voter suppression and Kemp was the secretary of state when he ran for governor famously against Stacey Abrams. That was a big to do. Uh, the, 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 you know, yeah. recent elections, they are not very encouraging. W- what is the could that tip these elections? You know, David, that raises like the bigger overarching question that none of us have an answer to, which is what does voting look like, not just in Georgia, but so many of these states that are not equipped to handle the amount of vote by mail that they're going to get, where there is still legal wrangling over um, things like who can get a ballot in the mail and who can't, um, what's happening with the voter files, are they being um, purged? Um, all of these things are still playing out in so many of these states that we're left with, you know, if, if I'm a campaign operative, still so much uncertainty about what the electorate is even going to look like. And when you can't actually do the kinds of things that you normally would be doing at this time in terms of registering voters, you know, look, the DMVs, for the most part, are closed down. Those are good sources of, of voter registration yeah. in a normal yeah. year. So to me, it's all these different factors get to this place where if you're sort of modeling this election and you are assuming certain things, I don't yeah. know. No. I don't know what to assume based on all of that. And and we know that it's likely by the time we hit October these states are going to have another wave of COVID coming through or right. flu season or whatever it is. And so, right. yeah, I don't know. It's it's worrisome. Yeah, no, I think it adds a, a real element of un, uncertainty uh, about the whole thing. So what about the sort of long shots, the really long shots uh, here, the the uh, the Kansases, the McConnell and Alabama, uh, where the where the R's are set Graham. up to get one back because we have a lot of races where you'd rather be the Democrat. And Alabama, Alabama, though yeah. it may be close, I think you'd rather be the Republican. It looks like Tuperville probably beat Sessions, and they have to have their runoff yeah, now. I agree, but um, you you think uh, Doug Jones has a shot in Alabama, or do you think it's pipe dreamy? Yeah, because it is Alabama. You know, it and, is Alabama, and for as bad as the president is doing nationally. Uh, I just think that's not going to be a problem there. So when we talk about the numbers that Democrats need to get, I think you should really start with four instead of three. Yeah. Right. So, you know, with the the top four, if we do our recap, Colorado, Arizona, Maine and North Carolina, then you get into the Montana, the Iowa, Georgia, and then the, uh, but on, on election night, there's one Georgia uh, in January, there's another Georgia. And then, you know, you're right. You then start saying, what about Kansas? Because the the Republican primary there is a mess. Yeah, let's talk about that. That one is worth a minute, I think, because this one is good old Chris Kobach, Republican nightmare. Even McConnell and the Senate committee are publicly against him uh, (laughs) in the primary, former Secretary of State. Yeah. Yeah. And they've released polling and everything. But, uh, you know, what do you think, Amy? That that one looks like a... They just set up a pack against them. Exactly. A crazy one to me. Yep. It it could be, but I just think uh, if it is true, I saw that news too, David, about Super PAC coming in, which isn't surprising. Yeah. You know, find a way to nuke 
Kobach enough that, quite frankly, I just think any other candidate in this race would be fine. I know, you know, there's a lot of hand-wringing and grumbling about Marshall, who is the Republican congressman, that you know, he's been a bad fundraiser and he's not particularly good um, on, you know, so much of, um, you know, the, the sort of raw politics. He's not very adept, but I just don't know that that really matters as much. Um, so if it's anybody but Kobach, that that race is, is tough. But again, the Democrat there, can't remember the number she posted in the first quarter, but you know, you, you have Democratic candidates in these third and fourth tier races with four, five, six million dollars. In South Carolina, Jamie Harrison, the candidate running against Lindsey Graham, yeah, incredible. raised almost 14 million dollars. now he raised it because he's running against lindsey graham but still that there are people writing checks to pretty much every democrat running is remarkable it is one of the things that has really transformed politics because yeah it it, it wasn't too many years ago when one thing you could reliably count on was that the republican candidate would probably outspend the democratic candidate and the goal of democratic candidates was to hang tough to hang close now because of the way money is raised online it's a completely different game and uh, democrats are really thriving trump's been an enormous asset to democrats in this regard yeah uh, he's like yep. a fundraising machine for democrats yep. it really shows that democratic intensity which pays off in more ways than money now let me ask you about mitch because i talked to a friend of mine in mitch world and the take i got there which i believed to be true was they got their best outcome, which was a damaged Amy McGrath who continued to suck up a ton of money uh, around the country and outspend them. But it's still Kentucky. She's not a particularly yeah. strong candidate. And they they believe with some confidence, but not certainty they're going to win. Yeah, I think that's a very fair assessment. I think she has been a pretty weak candidate who did get very lucky there at the end Early. that so much of the vote came by mail and yeah. so much of it came in right. early before Booker really got his momentum going. So she she did benefit there. But, you know, I've always been skeptical of this campaign, the McGrath campaign, given that it was 2018. She ran in a district that was a lot better for Democrats down in Lexington and came up short despite all of her national advantages and her money advantages so, you know, my thing was always, man, if if you're underperforming in a good Democratic year in a better district, how are you going to, it's sort of the question of with Arizona, right? How are you going to prove that you can do even better in a much tougher environment in a less friendly, you know, overall um, area, right? Running statewide versus against running in that a, district. Against, against a, a ferocious. That's right a ferocious and practiced opponent who has dispatched uh, opponent after opponent over the years by destroying them. And they've been carving on her for months now. Her numbers are not good in a general election. Her just her favorable numbers. She's starting off in a very difficult spot. So I agree. I agree with it. So what about Lindsay who who's, you know, Lindsay who if, if ever there was a poster child for a guy who adapted to Trump, mm-hmm. you know, he went from calling him an imbecile and a threat to humanity or whatever uh, to his biggest cheerleader to avoid a Republican primary. He, he, he managed to do that. 
Um, but you uh, you mentioned, you know, the opponent's raising a ton of d- uh, dough. Yep. He's got a good, uh, again, he has a great story to tell, and he tells it very, very well. Look, South Carolina is not moving in the way that Virginia and North Carolina have moved uh, in terms of, you know, these suburban voters and and an influx of Northerners or Midwesterners who've come in and sort of set up shop and now live there. So the transplant uh, thing is real, but it's not as significant. But still, in and around Charleston, Charleston County, the suburbs there, um, we had a Democrat win there in 2018 in that first district. I think that area is getting certainly much more open to Democrats. Um, you obviously have significant African-American population that um, to have an African-American Democratic candidate as your standard bearer is going to be very helpful in turning out the vote there. Um, so it's still, you know, because the central part and yeah. and sort of upcountry <laughs> still lean Republican, it's still one of the, you know, you've got to get everything going right there to to win but you can you can still pull out a pretty good number by doing you know african-american vote doing well among these sort of suburban charleston county and especially new younger voters moving into in and around charleston so it's been it's a fun place to watch, but it's a little too much. Yeah, it's still South Carolina, Jake. You know, it's just going to, I, I yeah. think it could be low single digits, though, four or five points. Yeah, for sure. But, but for that's sure. a tough, that's a, it's a tough mountain for him to climb. Harrison has run a great campaign, yep. though. He really has his media. Yep. It's has great. been outstanding. Yep. Uh, as you say, he's got a great story to tell. And Lindsay's damaged, you know, uh, people, he was a guy who could draw some moderate. And independent right. votes, and those are gone. He's, you know, he's going for hardcore base. Yep. Uh, now, so that that is a which will get him fifty two, fifty three percent, which is fine. You know, it's a win, but it's not a sixty forty win that he should have. You never know that this is nineteen eighty, and lightning will start striking like crazy in some of these places, and all of a sudden the lenses of the world lose. It could happen. It's just the... Well, that's where Texas, to me, is one of those that we're not really paying attention to, in part because Beto's not there, and John Cornyn isn't Ted Cruz, and so it's really kind of flown under the radar. And, you know, MJ Hager is not as... uh, I guess she just hasn't caught on in the way Beto did, but... You know, that's one of those that could sneak up and surprise us, too, Um, especially when you see, uh, you know, those numbers in Dallas County and Harris County Mm -hmm. and San Antonio and Austin. No, it's moving. They're going to pick up they're going to pick up at least a seat or so in Texas on the House level. And, you know, I just. Uh, you're right that that's yeah. one where you're like oh don't be surprised if that thing is as close as the beto cruise even though it didn't get the attention so reckless predictions uh and this is voluntary <laughs> um but i i love to do it even though again this is worth a quarter but i think gardner collins mcsally all go i think danes is going to lose too so there's four i think the ours are going to get alabama back so there's your tied senate so you really only need one of the maybes or the stretches to happen to go from beyond tied with Biden um, into that. And, you know, it, uh, 
it's sure a lot more in, in a possibility than it was just a year ago. And Donald J. Trump can take a big bow. Maybe they'll rename the DNC headquarters after him because uh, it's a <laughs> gift. He'd love to hang his name on that, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, I, I one last word on this. Be, uh, you're, you're right, Murphy, you made this reference before. Uh, 1980, I remember that election so well. I was a young reporter then. And uh, just to watch the Senate, that night and you saw giants of the senate mcgovern and 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 you know hard and uh, uh frank church and Bir- birch by i mean just people who you never expected to lose lost and that can happen so uh you know uh you'd have to say the odds are very much in favor of democrats uh, eking out a majority in the Senate, but it could be a few votes more than a majority, depending on what happens in this presidential race. Yep. I mean, you can yeah. see two more of these pop pretty quickly. Georgia, one of them at least, and Joni Ernst. So that yep. would get it to, you know, uh, plus three almost. Well, plus two. Yep. And then anyway, uh, we're, we're check back in a little closer, Amy. Thank you so much for bringing a spotlight sure. of... Uh, clarity into the fascinating uh, world of Senate races. And they can check out what you're doing at the Cook Political Report, which is the absolute daily racing form of this uh, key industry uh, (laughs) founded by our dear friend Charlie Cook. And we should plug your podcast too, Talking Politics with Amy Walter, The Takeaway, which you can check out online, or I believe it even airs on some radio stations, right? 250 of them Look across at that. the country. Yes, it's through WNYC <laughs> and PRX. It's crazy. All right. Can get them in a lot of places, including She's in New Hampshire. Spin in the hot wax. <laughs> All right, let's take a minute to hear from one of our esteemed sponsors. You know, Kips, every once in a while uh, on Twitter, people will write in and say, Axe, you make me nauseous. But nausea is nothing to joke about. It's like getting stuck in the back of a car and you're kind of a little bit hemmed in and you just you get that feeling and it starts in your stomach. It's not. Yeah. A good and, and, and like you're on your way to something good, a, a celebration or party or something. And now you're nauseous and you can't get rid of it, except there is an answer now. And it's called Relief Band. Tell us about Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all-natural relief with zero side effects. Zero. For as long as needed, the technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now through Relief Band, it's available to all of us. Here's how it works with Relief Band. It stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you're sick. Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. If you know somebody who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift. I'm telling you, Relief Band works. We know from our own experience. We sent one to our engineer who often gets nauseous during our shows, and he reports 100% cure. Don't fall for those cheap bands you see in drugstores or on your Instagram feed. All right. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for our Hacks listeners. If you go to ReliefBand.com and use promo code 
HACKS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to ReliefBand, R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D.com and use our promo code HACKS for 20% off plus free shipping. Okay, look, we're going to keep your questions for the mailbag, hacksontap at gmail.com, and do a few of them next week because we took a lot of time on the Senate races. But it is time for... Last call. What do you got, X? Yeah, so on my way over here, I got the news that uh, Bolsonaro, the, the leader of Brazil, president of Brazil, who has been uh, as flagrant as Donald Trump in trying to ignore the uh, growing threat of COVID-19, just tested positive for COVID-19. And I hope this is a one more lightning bolt, one more message for everyone, including the man in the Oval Office. This is not something you can will away. You can't order it away. You can't authoritarian it away. It is science, and it's going to get worse as we try and ignore it, or if we try and ignore it. So I hope uh, President Bolsonaro's plight strikes home with people here in the U.S. And by the way, I sat down for my Axe Files this week with Atul Gawande, who is such a brilliant writer on health issues, to talk about a variety of things, but really to focus on this COVID-19 catastrophe. And uh, he was both encouraging and bracing, and uh, I urge you guys to listen to it. Absolutely. I mean, all this thing has is a couple strands of hostile uh, proteins. We've got big brains and masks and soap and water and we can wash our hands. You would think you would think we'd be smart enough to fight back uh, and it would help if we had leaders that did. Mine is really quick. I get a lot of emails from people curious and I plugged it before about Republican voters against Trump. That's rvet.org. So I got my compatriots there, Bill Crystal, Sarah Longwell, and Tim Miller and we did a special edition of my old podcast which is sleeping away on iTunes called Radio Free GOP. We dug up the transmitter, dusted off the jingles, and did a big roundtable about the anti-Trump Republican effort. If you are interested in that, you can download it on iTunes or go to RadioFreeGOP.net and listen in and hear the entire war plan and find out what you can do to help, even make your own ad like we, we do a lot of. So check it out if you want to join the fight with Republican voters against Trump. Well, X, we'll see you next week, and uh, there'll be sure more hackery to talk about. There will. And Amy, thanks for being an honorary hack today. Uh, <laughs> we look forward to having you back off. And- I'm honored. Honored. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Amy. All right, Amy, thank you. 